Good morning. This is going to be interesting. I have a frog in my throat that won't go away. Ribbit. Only a couple people caught that, so. So we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 49 as we continue this series about But God. And uh, today it's But God Says Don't Be Afraid. This is even going to be tougher than I thought. So let's look at Psalm 49. We'll read the whole thing. I know it's scary to think about reading an entire psalm, but it's not that long. It really isn't. It just looks big because they take up a big chunk of page. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain He is like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boast. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers, who will never see light again. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the blessed hope in your words. And we pray, Father, that through the power of your spirit, our minds would become like your minds, that our hearts would become like your hearts, that our spirits would become like your spirit. And we pray that your spirit would be present and active here in this room, in this place this morning, uh, drawing us into you, drawing us deeper into your truth and into your word and into a more rich and joyful relationship with you, walking with you in the fullness of the joy that comes and living in the truth that you are here with us. And I pray, Lord, that this hour, as we look at your word and Understand why you tell us not to be afraid, that we would be obedient to you and trust you 
and put all things into your hands, including our very lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here it says right there in verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Then in verse 16, be not afraid when a man becomes rich because of all the things listed there. And so God says, don't be afraid. Okay, that immediately raises a very fair question. Why we should not be afraid? I mean, the world's a scary place. I mean, if you happen to be living in Ukraine right now, it's a very scary place because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what's going to happen. There are certain indications, certain trends saying that certain things are probably going in one direction, but they may not finish that way. They may change because things change very suddenly. In our own lives, in our own daily lives, we recognize this reality that you're walking along, going along, doing everything as you normally do. And then all of a sudden, without very much warning, sometimes things suddenly change. And it's not so much fun as it was the day before. And sometimes those changes are frightening. Sometimes they are unnerving and unsettling. Right? We all understand that because we've all lived that moment. And in those moments... God says, don't be afraid. Okay, don't be afraid. I need a little, okay, I need a little more than that, right? I mean, it's just, just telling me not to be afraid is kind of like not enough because I'm afraid already, right? The, the tell me to, you know, the part about telling me not to be afraid, give me that before I get there, right? Not after I'm already paralyzed in fear. So why should we not be afraid? Why should we not be afraid? It's a simple question. And it's a fair question when he tells us, don't be afraid. Why should I not be afraid? Life is scary right this minute. Why should I not be afraid? The first answer to that question of why we should not be afraid is because his sovereign rule over all of life and world events. I mean, Look at Psalm 49. The psalmist, one of the, one of the sons of Korah, just hammers over and over and over and over that it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how much control over the world you have. It doesn't matter how much control over your life that you have. At the end, you are in the hands of God and you're going to end up in the same place as everyone else. Okay, well, that's not exactly comforting, right? That I'm going to eventually die one day and end up in the grave is not exactly the most comforting message to me in this moment when I'm gripped by fear. So what's your point about everybody going to the grave? The point that the psalmist is making is not to sort of, you know, it's not one of those add insult to injury, pour salt into the open wounds, his point that he's making is that no one is really in control. Even the person who looks like they're in control is not in control. So if that is true, what does it mean for some of these world leaders who are acting like they are in control? They're really not. 
in control. Only our God is in control. And he is the one directing events so that it moves and goes to exactly the place that he wants them to go. Yes, that's somewhat comforting in the midst of my fear. But in the course of his directing world history and human events, why did he have to involve me in this mess? Right? I was happy in little old Elizabeth. I didn't need to get sucked into the world events going on around me. I was completely content to live as if they didn't exist. Why do I have to get sucked into it? Can't God just do what he wants to do and leave me out of it? Yes, he could. He absolutely could do whatever he wants to do and leave all of us out of it. But he doesn't. Okay, so that just raises a new question. Why? Why does he decide to involve us in it instead of leaving us out of it? I mean, it would be easier. I wouldn't be afraid. Life would be good. I'm happy. Why? Why does he choose to involve us in it? Well, look, everything God does has multiple reasons. There's never just one thing he's doing. He's always doing multiple things in everything that occurs, right? So why does he involve us in these things that are not going the way we'd want them to and seem scary to us? Why? Well, the fear itself answers the first part of this question. The fact that we are afraid indicates that we need a little more growth in the area of trust in him, right? I mean, why does fear, where, what is fear? Let's just define fear. What is fear? Fear at its core is the unknown that I cannot control. That's really the definition of fear. Events are happening and I can't control them. And so because I can't control them, I don't know how they're going to turn out. And because I don't know how they turn out, I now anticipate one or several of the worst possible outcomes and dread and fear that. And as a result, fear causes us to do stupid things, right? right. I know some people say, well, you shouldn't use the word stupid. Stupid is a good word. And I'll make a case as to why stupid is a good word. What's the difference between stupid and ignorant? Ignorant is doing something and not knowing any better, right? There's a famous story of President Lincoln at the White House hosting a dinner. And in those days, life was very different in Washington, D.C. and in the White House. And it was not uncommon at all for individuals from Springfield, Illinois, who happened to be in Washington, D.C. for some reason, to just walk right up to the White House, come inside, and expect to say hello to their old friend, Abraham Lincoln. And in this one case, an individual who was a farmer from in Springfield area came in. He, he spoke to the president. The president said, listen, why don't you just stay for dinner? It's so close to we'll having dinner in just a few minutes, and we'll have an extra place set for you. And then... They did, and they're having dinner, and afterwards the, uh, sir, the, the stewards in the White House stewards served coffee, and this Illinois farmer did what he always did whenever there was coffee poured in his coffee cup. He took it and poured it into the saucer that the cup was sitting in, 
because it was hot, right? You can pour it in the saucer that disperses it, starts helps to make it cool faster. Then he picks the saucer up and starts to slurp from the saucer. He's sitting in the White House with the President of the United States and senators and congressmen and maybe some foreign dignitaries, and he just slurped from his saucer. And then he realized, I'm the only person slurping from my saucer. Oh, this is one of them dinners you're not supposed to slurp from your saucer. Right? He was ignorant to what the expectations were for someone dining in the White House with the president in 1860. Right? That's ignorant. You do something, but you don't know any better. Right? Stupid is when you know better, but you do it anyway. Right? Like, you get upset with someone. And you know that if you say these words, it's just going to make it worse. But you can't stop yourself. We're going to say these words and make it worse. Feels good in the moment. Yeah. And then it doesn't afterwards. That's stupid. Stupid is knowing better and doing it anyway. Right. And here we are. The difference between knowing he is trustworthy and actually trusting him. I know he is trustworthy until I'm afraid. And then I'm not so sure. But that's stupid because I know better. I know he's trustworthy even in the things that I'm afraid of because he is in control. I don't have to be afraid. I can not be afraid because he is in complete control of everything happening. And in his loving kindness, he has shown me there are places and aspects of my life and my beliefs and what I think is true and what I think is false that I'm not trusting him. Right? See, I'm ignorant to the fact that I think I trust that I don't trust him in this area. But by the very virtue of him causing events to occur and me becoming afraid, I now recognize I am, I'm, I'm no longer ignorant that I don't trust him in this part of my life or this aspect of the world around me. And so the first thing he's trying to do with fear, allowing bad things to happen to us is show us where we still don't trust him. And you think, well, do we really have to go through this exercise again? Yes, we really have to go through this exercise again because he loves us too much to leave us living in false belief system and false ideas and thinking. He loves us too much to leave us there. And so he does this uncomfortable confrontation between what we really believe and what we think we believe so that we will truly learn to trust him. Another reason we can see as to why he allows bad things to happen to us is because he is using us as an example to others. I mean, yes, sometimes by example, I don't mean that, you know, it's better to learn from other people's mistakes than from your own. I mean, that's true. Sometimes that's the consequences of bad mistakes and foolish decisions on our part. 
But I mean, he shows us, he shows others through us what it means to trust him in uncomfortable times and situations. The story that Stephanie shared with us from the World War II bomb shelter is a perfect example of showing how he uses difficult circumstances to show others what it looks like to trust in God during scary times, right? But the other reason he does things the way he does it is to give us the opportunity. This kind of goes along with the previous one about being examples of how to trust God in difficult circumstances. He gives us the chance to speak his truth into the heart, minds, and souls of those around us. Right? How can you be so calm with all this craziness going on in the world around me? Because I trust my God. What do you mean you trust him? How does that work? I would kind of like to not be so nervous and worried all the time. Can you explain to me how that works? It's, it opens the door to the gospel. It opens because doesn't that sound strange? You're calm. How can you be so calm? Because I trust my God. Well, tell me how that works. Well, there was this guy called Jesus. He lived a long time ago in Israel. Wait a minute. Why are you telling me this story about Jesus? What's he got to do with being calm in chaos? Everything. You see, that, that leads to the second reason why we should not be afraid. He has redeemed us. Right? Ultimately, I can trust God in the most difficult of circumstances because he has redeemed me. Look at Psalm 56. Many of you are going to recognize some of the verses in this one right away. Psalm 56, starting in verse... Um, yeah, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not very long. Again, don't get, don't get freaked out because somebody says they want to read the whole psalm. It's very short. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long attackers oppress me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I pray. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they have waited for my life, for their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Wow, what amazing confidence David expresses here in this psalm about his trust in God. But then we, you're probably expecting this. We have just a little problem, just a little problem here. 
If your Bible says it, it has a little introductory there before verse 1. To the choir master, according to the dove of the far-off terebinths, a mectom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. When the Philistines seized David in Gath. So he wrote this as a result of him being captured by the Philistines. When, what was that? When did that happen? So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Starting in verse 10. Right? So David's now gotten on Saul's bad side and Saul's decided to kill him. And David has said, I don't think I want to hang around here anymore because Saul keeps trying to kill me. And he finally decides it's time to flee. And Jonathan's like, oh, no, this isn't really real. Your dad, my dad doesn't want to kill you. He knows you're one of the most important guys he has. And then finally, Jonathan himself sees how Saul's mind has been tortured to the place where he wants to kill David. And he says, "Okay, David, you need to run. And then David starts on the run and he ends like, okay, what were you thinking, David? I mean, you're the guy that has slain hundreds, thousands of Philistines. And your response to Saul wanting to kill you is to run to a Philistine city for refuge. What were you thinking? I mean, how is this going to turn out well for you? going to the place where you've killed a bunch of their kids and seeking refuge, right? I mean, they want you dead for what you've done and you're going to go hide out with them. Okay, this doesn't make any sense, but that's what David does, right? So here we are, chapter 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see that this man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So I personally think that right there in the middle of verse 12 is where Psalm 56 comes from. That in that moment, David is going, oh, shoot. What was I thinking? This was stupid, right? I know better, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to go hide out with the king of the Philistines in Gath. What was I thinking? Right. And in that moment, we get Psalm 56. Was David doing what God wanted him to do? Going to Gath? Going to the Philistines? Or was he doing his own thing? Or was it both. See, David goes to the Philistines. Maybe he was disobeying God and running there. Maybe he was obeying God and running there. But the end result is still the same. He suddenly finds himself in some very unpleasant circumstances. He's gone to hide out with the people that want to kill him. What was I thinking? 
And in that moment of realizing the peril of where he is, he comes up with Psalm 56. All right. So if we just take another look at that. Back, I'm sorry, I should have told you to keep your place. In Psalm 56, verse 4 is the place where we have a problem. Right. I just read to you the historical narrative of where David is and what's happening when he writes this psalm. And here is in verse 4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Hello? You're in the middle of a bunch of Philistines, David. Let me tell you, let me list the things they can do to your flesh. Right? Starting with a sword through your belly. Then one across your neck. And that's if they just feel like killing you quickly. Right? They probably have some ways to kill you slowly. They probably have some ways to terrorize your flesh. Right? I mean, we can make this long list of things that the Philistines can do to his flesh. And his response is, In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? It's like, are you mentally insane? Do you need professional help here? There's lots of things they can do to you. But he's not afraid. Why? Because he does really trust in God. In this moment, we see some of the purposes God has for the unpleasant experience of David being in front of the king of Gath. We see what it's like. We see an example of trusting God in some of the most horrifying, scary moments on this earth. This is what it looks like to trust God. Psalm 56 is what it looks like to trust God in the most scariest moments we can ever face. And we, we today get to see this because David went through this as an example for us. What a gift from our father that he has shown us what it looks like to trust him. So this immediately raises another question. So we understand now a little more about why we should not be afraid. And so when we face difficult and scary circumstances, it raises another very fair question. If David, why not you and I? Now, that one's a little open-ended, right? If David had to go through scary circumstances so that all throughout church history, we would have an example of what it looks like to trust God in scary circumstances. If David went through that, why not you and I? Why shouldn't you and I go through scary circumstances so that we will also be an example to others of what it looks like to trust God or maybe not to trust God in scary circumstances? But it also raises the additional question of if God delivers David like this. Why not him deliver you and I? Okay. Now I know why not to be afraid. If he delivered David, why not deliver me? If he delivered David, why not deliver us? All right. So let's take a look at Romans chapter eight. I know this seems kind of a weird 
a weird, crazy break. Trust me. Stay with me. Trust me on this one. Chapter 8, verses 31 through uh, 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why should we not be afraid? He has his sovereign rule over all events and he has redeemed us. Nothing can separate us from his love. I mean, I challenge, I, okay, I double dog dare you to find something else that needs to be added to this list that Paul gave us in Romans chapter 8. What else can we add to the list that can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, we could maybe list out individual specific things, but even those are going to fall under one of the categories he listed here. In these verses, how is it that I cannot be afraid in the scariest of times because he has redeemed me and his love cannot be separated from me because I am in Christ in Christ Jesus alone. We have our hope, the very firm foundation that nothing can separate us from his love in the most scariest of circumstances. And if you read Fox's book of martyrs, we see this long list starting all the way back to the earliest church with Stephen in Acts chapter eight, all the way up through the modern day where believers who are persecuted and martyred, effectively murdered because they believe in Jesus Christ, standing firm to the end and with amazing courage, amazing strength, amazing fearlessness to say Jesus is Lord, even in the face of death. And they die. Now, a person who only sees things from this world will justifiably raise the question, Brian, they should have been afraid because they died. They suffered physical death. That is absolutely true. But they ain't dead dead. They just physically dead. Their spirit and their soul is immediately with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will know the glories of heaven long before you and I do. Or long before their fellow 
Christians, believers, friends, non-believers, everybody else around them, right? Why should I be afraid? He is our Redeemer. You know, we sang to begin with in Christ alone. And I did that on purpose. I really try to stay out of the music because it's really bad, usually bad, if I insert myself into the worship music. But I did it this time by asking that we sing that song. It was written in 2000 by uh, Stuart Townsend and Keith Getty. They're modern hymn writers. And in an interview done with Stuart Townsend, and I've got to meet Keith Getty. He's really kind of fun. Uh, But in an interview with uh, Stuart Townsend about this song, he makes several comments about it. He says that Keith and I met in the autumn of 2000 at a worship event, and we, we resolved to try to work together on some songs. A few weeks later, Keith sent some melody ideas, and the first one on the CD was this magnificent, haunting melody that I loved, and immediately started writing down some lyrical ideas on what I felt should be a timeless theme commensurate with the melody. So the theme of the life, death, resurrection of Christ, and the implications of that for us just began tumbling out. And we got together and later on figured out a tune, and we felt we had encapsulated what we wanted to say. Townsend and Getty both admit that they are motivated by the idea of capturing biblical truth in songs and hymns that will not only cause people to express their worship in church, but will build them up in their Christian lives. It seems like this song is timely, Townsend says. He, wrote, he said these words in 2002. Ten years ago, he said these words. This song seems timely. We in the West have had our sense of safety and security brutally torn apart by recent world events, and it has caused many to reevaluate the foundations of their faith. I feel that the song has helped to stir faith in many believers that God really is our protector and that our lives are in his unshakable hands. He could have wrote those words yesterday. I don't know about you, but world events are certainly shaking my life when I stop to think about them apart from who Christ is and who I am in him. Townsend went on to say also that the lyrics of this song excite him because it places our hope, our assurance, and our eternal destiny in the right place on the solid foundation of Christ. I know in my own life, I need reminding continually not to live by my feelings or by my circumstances, but by the unchanging truth of the gospel. Why do we become afraid? Because we do just what Peter did. We take our eyes off of Jesus and start looking at the storm flailing around us. And every time we start looking at the storm and stop looking at Jesus, we're going to be afraid because we've lost sight of the one thing we can put trust in in the most scariest of circumstances. Mm. This song is so rich. I'm so glad we sang it this morning and we're going to sing it again. Just the fullness and the richness of the truth that it speaks. And so I ask again, why should we not be afraid? Right? I said, because God is our redeemer. Christ has given us victory over sin, death in the grave. All of the work of evil Look, what does Psalm 49 says? It, it, if we go back and read it again, it's giving us this. It's, it's a, a, if you want to take a compact P 
pithy statement to summarize Psalm 49. It's this. All the work of evil done against us shall be undone in this life or the next. All of it. Everything. It will be undone in this life or the next. Why should I not be afraid? Because from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. But there is a catch. Are you in Christ? Everything we've talked about this morning is is only true if we are in Christ. Have you put your trust in him as the savior and redeemer of your soul? And do you continually put your trust there? No one does it perfectly. That's why the story of Peter walking on the water becomes so appealing to most of us. We identify with that moment when Peter stopped trusting in Christ and started looking to the storm around him. And we do the same thing. But by God's grace and mercy, each storm that progresses in our lives, we progressively grow stronger so that we look longer and our looking at the storm is shorter before our eyes turn back to our Savior. Are you in Christ? That is the best advice I can give you in the storms and craziness of the world around you and in your moments of fear. Are you in Christ? I don't mean that in terms of you, are you in Christ as in someone who's never trusted him? If that's true, today's a great day to solve that problem and resolve that issue forever. But I mean in the sense of, are you in Christ when the craziness of the world is driving you nuts? And if, and if the answer to that question is, well, no, not completely, or I've taken my eyes off, then you've already solved your own problem without me having to say anything else. Return your eyes to the one who is in control of your destiny and fulfill your destiny. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the mercies of your word. Thank you for the gift of glorious, beautiful, heart-exalting truths that you give us through songs. And we pray, Father, that we, that we would be worthy of these kinds of gifts by putting our trust in you so completely that the chaos around us does not cause fear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.